0: I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the no Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. At the beginning of the 21st century, strip-tillage and no-tillage were used on less than 1% of California's annual cropland. Tillage practices in the state had in fact changed very little over the prior 90 years. Since that time, however, there have been major reductions in overall tillage disturbance in several cropping sectors, including vegetables, silage corn, and organic acres. Jeff Mitchell is a cropping systems cooperative extension specialist at the University of California, Davis, and has been active in leading the evolution of new reduced disturbance systems with many farmer and private sector partners. He was a speaker at the 2019 National Strip Tillage Conference, where he shared research and results of recent strip-till practices in the Golden State. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lesseter talks with Jeff about his role in reducing tillage out West, some successful no-till and strip-till practices that have been embraced, why reduced tillage has been slow to catch on in the area, and much more. Here are Frank and Jeff Mitchell.
1: We're talking to Jeff Mitchell at the University of California, and I'm going to let him explain his background and what his title is at the University of California now. So Jeff, tell us a little about your background.
2: Well, Frank, thank you very much for this uh, wonderful opportunity. I'm uh, in the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of California, Davis, and I'm what we call a cropping systems cooperative extension specialist, so that's a very broad kind of job category there and it uh, it allows me frankly a a great deal of flexibility to work in a whole range of cropping systems and my original assignment was more vegetable crop focused but since then I've received permission to actually expand into the much more broader work that we're doing right now.
1: So are you a California native or someplace else?
2: No, I'm one of your next-door neighbors, actually. I was born in the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan. In fact, I was just fondly back there last summer. We visited my brother there in the UP. And then our family, my youngest years were spent in, in that area. And then we also lived in Indiana and Illinois. So I'm... <laughs> I'm really a Midwesterner from my roots, and then eventually my dad was on the early fringe of the computer era, mm-hmm. and it was happening uh, several decades ago, but we eventually moved to California, and I was a high school student and then college and, and postgraduate stuff in here in California.
1: So you've been a big player recently in the conservation, agriculture, conservation tillage, no tillage, cover crop, strip till. Tell us what you got going on there and tell us a little bit about all the tillage that goes on in California and all the differences yeah. and everything.
2: Well, my goodness, this is going to be quite a long story <laughs> there, but and let me just do a little bit of history here at the outset here.
1: Yep, that's fine, that's what I want.
2: Let's just talk talk about annual crops, all right? Those okay. crops that are seeded in an annual basis there. Much of the, the practices and the tillage practices and systems that have been developed for these crops that exist today, they really source their uh, genesis from back in the 1930s. That's when uh, irrigation, Wells and pumps were instituted in California, and the farmers switched from essentially dry land, rain fed agriculture, to irrigated agriculture. Sure. So, the last 30 or so years, the tillage practices have changed, yes, certainly to some extent, but were basically the same kind of thing. Uh, working up the soil, we didn't use plow, or farmers didn't use plows as commonly as they did in those old days back in the midwest but the disk plow was the the tool of of greatest use and consistency in those days and then so that the tillage practices existed since 1930 in california and those practices have led to the Truly phenomenal productivity of our state, and you may well know that seven of the top eight ag producing counties in the United States are found in California, sure, and many of those are actually maybe fifty miles just from where i 'm sitting talking to you today here so it 's been a historically very phenomenally productive area, and tillage has been a big part of that, so the, much of the the dogma if you will, or the reason. Why there's been a little bit of a, a slowness in, in doing and changing a lot of that is because everything's worked. Things have, you know, had a history of performance and working and productivity. And so why, why bother messing with that? that? In the last 15 years, though, just as many places, including the Midwest and other parts of the world, where no-till and strip-till and other forms of reduced disturbance tillage have caught on. We've seen an uptick in, in not only the introduction of equipment and machinery and techniques and approaches here in California that you all have experienced much earlier than we did here, but there's been a, a definite increase in attention to these kinds of systems for a whole variety of different reasons here. So we're on that you know changing upswing of, of practices right now uh, and in the last 15 or so years
1: when you're talking irrigation you're talking flooding, irrigation that the water comes down through, from the mountains
2: yeah so what one of the things that uh, and I'm I'm often reminded of this uh, when I think about how some of these systems that are so productive in California have evolved and have been developed. Farmers have had the great luxury of relying on developed water resources, canals and uh, water comes in from the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains and all that gets funneled down through rivers and canals into the, well, and one of the ways it it gets funneled down is through the what's called the Central Valley, California Central Valley Improvement Project, and it's just a the California Aqueduct that moves California from northern California through the Central San Joaquin Valley, and eventually down to southern California. And farmers all along that the way of that that canal passage have been enabled to use water for irrigation uh, during during the time since 1960s. And so what that meant in the early days was farmers would apply allocations of irrigation water on the surface as uh, furrow or flood irrigation. But then in more recent years, as waters become more dear and precious, more pressurized systems of various forms, either drip irrigation or sprinklers mm-hmm. uh, have become more common here. But in the old days, when, when we started, we were working in essentially no-till systems that were surface irrigated. So that's that was our starting point. And now, We've expanded into more overhead sprinkler, center pivot kind of work, and more recently into subsurface drip work. But it all began with surface applications of water, yeah.
1: So these farmers, have they got to pay for this water, and are they competing with uh, consumers in big city water like going to Los Angeles?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's very severe competition for water allocations in California, and and I'm not sure if you know this, but as recently as 2014, the state legislature in California enacted a law that was called Sigma SGMA which stands for Sustainable Groundwater Management Act and what that has essentially done is mandated that people have to uh, keep track of how much water is being pumped out of groundwater resources so if the powers that allocate you know the federal water through the the California Aqueduct if that those allocations are restricted The default would be, has been historically for farmers to pump water from the groundwater but as of 2014, uh, they're no longer able to do that and they can only pump the amount of water that's sustainably replenished or from, from depleting the aquifer there so that's going to be a very serious monumental challenge that people are going to have and and there are now what are called watershed coalitions that have formed and have been mandated by the government where people in a watershed have to come up with a sustainability plan for managing groundwater resources and that's going to you know it's going to mean yes increased price for water and also different ways that water is going to be managed for uh, water use efficiency or fallowed. So that's the kind of climate we're in right now, where in particularly in the last maybe six or seven years where the California drought was in place, we saw in places that I travel routinely on a daily basis, you know, 30 percent of the ground was fallowed because farmers were not getting their historically provided allocation from the federal projects.
1: Can a farmer sell his allocation of water?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not really all that savvy about this, but yes, there are going to be these kind of water trading and water selling mechanisms that are going to be in place there, and uh, some of that that happens already there. Yeah. Well,
1: you're working with all kinds of producers. Let's go down in the vegetable area and walk me through this. I mean, some of these guys have been doing conventional tillage or equivalent, and making as many as a dozen trips over the field.
2: Yeah, I know that's about right there. And, and I guess let me share with you the evolution of our work here Okay, that'd be great. We actually we, what what we did and again, much of this comes from direct contacts and mentors that I've had through the No Till Farmer Association that you've led for so many good years there and other farmers that I've known and, and researchers and colleagues that I've had around the, the country and the world, sure. in fact, that they've really been inspirational in a lot of the encouragement that they provided to me and us in California. We started with some of the crops that would be uh, more readily amenable to reduce disturbance tillage systems, and by that I mean, well, we, we you know we've gone everywhere from some of those crops like corn and cotton and sorghum and beans and wheat that have good experience bases uh, around the world there. And then we've moved into the the more high-value crops, the more delicate or sensitive crops uh, that – that have more refined management associated with them. I remember I was at uh, a meeting back in the Midwest, and you probably know Rick Bieber from South Dakota. He's a farmer that works with Dwayne Beck. And I remember him coming up to me after a a meeting presentation that I had made about what we're doing in California. He said, Jeff, you know, I'd I'd offer to really help you out if there's anything I can ever do. My son is doing a lot of the farming now, and and I have some more free time. And he, he told me, he said, Jeff, when you go back, Select the hardest crop that you can think of and show that you could make it work. That doesn't take too long. To f- there are some hard candidate crops out there, and the vegetables certainly come into that, that realm or that sector there. So in recent years, we've had the, the really exciting opportunity and very good fortune of working with a group of maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 vegetable farmers here in California who have been at these kinds of soil improvement, cover crop, compost amendment kind of systems for many, many years. But they also now recognize that new challenge and the new frontier of reducing disturbance and going into more reduced tillage systems there. So working with them and seeing some of the the true innovation and the fascination that they have with you know moving to that new frontier it's it's just been a real uh, engaging. Uh, they're all top-notch folks and working with the utmost of creativity and ingenuity and equipment and innovation. So that's, that's something that we're pushing forward now. And imagine, you know, rather than, or you know this very well, Frank, I know, but rather than green manuring and, and disking in cover crops, can we leave them on the surface uh, to protect the soil, to reduce evaporation, and then somehow either transplant or strip-till or transplant directly, into that residue and take advantage of many of the the benefits that could be associated with those kind of techniques that you know so well back there so that's where we're at right now and this group we're actually part of a well i mean it's it's a project it's a formal project but we've got people from north of sacramento and the sacramento valley down through the san joaquin valley and then over in uh, near the central coast there by the small town of Hollister. Sure. And again, a very experienced group, but they're at this, and they're trying to to learn and push the frontiers forward. So these vegetable guys, is this going
1: to be a single crop a year, or are they going to be double cropping or triple cropping or what?
2: Well, that's a good, good question there. So it, it depends on the, the region there. There are, in, in the main central valley, the Great Valley of California there, uh, there's, there tends to be about one crop per year there. So imagine a situation where uh, a farmer would be, you know, growing a summer vegetable, let's say processing tomatoes or something like sure. that. Okay. They would then, uh, they would precede that tomato crop with a, a winter cover crop that would probably be terminated and turned into a surface mulch in March, probably. And then they would do their reduced disturbance establishment of the tomatoes in, in April, probably. In In Hollister, in the Central Coast, And over in the Salinas Valley, the cropping is more intensive. And you're absolutely right that, you know, two or more crops a year of vegetables are the norm over there. So there's a farmer that we're working with, Phil Foster, and he is very keen on inserting cover crops, first of all, almost immediately after he harvests his vegetables. And imagine, if you will, under water scarcity conditions, what he is doing with his cover crops is he will... He will seed individual lines with a a planter of cover crop seed. And then he will irrigate those cover crops throughout the year with a single line of surface drip tape that allows him to put very small amounts of water very precisely. And what he can achieve with that is he's getting cover eventually. The cover crop will fill in and it'll provide 100% canopy cover with very small amounts of water. So he's putting all the goals of keeping the soil covered, adding organic matter into the soil, having something living as often as he can into place there while also minimizing disturbance of tillage by using strip till or some, some other form that he's working on. That's just a stunningly impressive example of, of the innovation that this, this group is working on here. So, let's walk through what Phil
1: Foster would do. He would uh, when would he see the cover crop?
2: At his farm, there's, a, first of all, a great deal of diversity, of rotations, of timing okay. of crops, and the establishment of endurance crops. So I'll just generalize a little bit here. But in the winter time, let's, let's go into the summer warm season cropping systems there. He would be growing a cover crop right now. For instance, you know, November through March period, that's when okay. cover crops are normally grown in these kind of vegetable systems. And then he would, he would uh, manage that. And, and many of these farmers are all organic, so they're having to deal with you know somehow terminating the cover crop non chemically which has been a very big learning challenge and opportunity there uh and convert that into a surface mulch and then work uh, out the the details and the equipment Uh, procedures for how to get a a summer crop established into that mulch there. So what Phil is doing then, he would do a variety of cover crop termination activities or operations, and they would be very concisely or precisely centered on the maturity of the cover crop. So he would have maybe a cover crop that's made with the broadleaf phacelia coupled with vetch, maybe, maybe he would have some other species in that, that mixture there. Mm -hmm. He would come in and mow that, or he may actually roll that down and then mow it. And then he has developed what he calls a vertical tillage machine. It's all it is, is some coulter blades that are are positioned straight facing on a toolbar that helps him to cut up some of the cover crop crowns that would, you know, maybe be a little bit resistant to to flat out dying or or, or sure. termination, and then he would come in and uh, maybe strip till, and he would go with his vegetables and uh, through, and, and then it's conventional management there. But that's a, a tremendous amount of reduction in overall soil disturbance or tillage in those few operations that he's doing right now. And he's done this now for a couple of years. This is pretty brand new, and he you know he's had some some learning challenges there. But it's it's quite exciting to be a part of that and to see this level of innovation innovation. innovation being achieved and addressed in these traditionally very very difficult high value uh, crops there so that's that's one example another example and I'll just share one of the other farmers who's involved with this His his name is Scott Park and he's up in Meridian California and uh, again he's he's working in a corn situation this is all organic farming actually so he doesn't have the the luxury of the ability to put on uh, herbicides, but he grew a winter cover crop that was essentially vetch and triticale, and then he came in and he did a couple of things. First of all, he mowed it uh, down at, again, a good stage of maturity, and in one of his systems, he evaluated sheep coming in as grazing the cover crop, and then he did strip-till ahead of his corn planting, and so that's a a dramatic reduction in tillage passes compared to his prior conventional, you know, minimum tiller of system yeah. that he was using on where he would work in the beds and green manure, the cover crop there
1: what heights would they mow this
2: cover crop so scott is really he's a proponent of vetch as a as a cover crop so he's got a lot of experience with the the legume cover crop of vetch but he mixed that with triticale this last year and it was probably well it had seed heads in the the triticale so it was probably you know after uh, the anthesis or flowering stage and, and and at that Early dough stage of the, when I think he, mm-hmm. he ended up uh mowing that down there, so he also was quite successful in terminating the cover crop just mechanically or based on maturity right. and everything that hasn't been the case for uh everyone involved in a project and and you know terminating the cover crop is still as as you can well imagine that's that's an or a challenge for organic folks there but i think we made progress and there's a lot the group that we started with with a small number of of farmers word has gotten out now and there are many many more who have become interested and intrigued and who have signed on to receive our video updates and come to our meetings when we have update discussions and everything so the last one we had just a couple of weeks ago up in Stockton California centrally located meeting spot uh, it, it lasted for five hours and there was one person that was actually on a long distance trip to Japan and he he connected through video televideo conference call for all five hours so it was really it's, it's really that that project has probably been the most engrossing and engaging group of folks that I've ever had the good luxury of, of working with and yeah you know a lot of these practices that we're talking about here you know that are fairly new i mean some of the cover cropping is not a a brand new thing for farmers in california there's a there's a history of that but it it's still a very new thing in terms of the number of folks who are actually doing it particularly in annual cropping systems but your experience back in the midwest and through the great plains area you, you know has has been invaluable for us out here we've learned a great deal in not everything works and not everything is is exactly the same but the the general underlying principles are things that we're very keen to pay more attention to here
1: right you mentioned the farmer maybe i got this confused but you said he rolled the crop and then he mowed it the cover crop
2: phil foster probably tried rolling first of all Okay. And then he would come in and, if that if that had not been 100% successful, then he would come in and flail, mow that, or, or chop that. Oh, okay. I do think, and then Scott Park probably... Uh, it had two systems again. One was the one that was grazed by sheep, mm-hmm. and the other one he used a flail mower uh, to knock that down. And you know, and it you can well imagine it it disappears and it vanishes fairly readily here in our in our climate here. Uh, right. And the regrowth was not a problem there. That was something. And then, then what Scott Park did up in in northern Sacramento Valley or the South Sacramento Valley, he he actually used uh, his GPS planter once the corn had been established. He offset the planter units, and he planted a summer cover crop to to grow right alongside the corn. Uh, again, just trying to to you know implement the principles of sure. of diversity and uh, uh, organic matter inputs into the the soil there. So there's a lot of stuff like that that quite honestly has not been ever done before, frankly, <laughs> out yeah. here. And it, it it's it's just exciting to be a part of that.
1: Well, I'm sure it is. You mentioned earlier line line seeding with drip irrigation. Can you explain that a little?
2: What Phil Foster, the farmer that we're working with over in, in Hollister, California, which is just maybe 10 miles east of uh, Monterey, California, or the, okay. the Salinas Valley, the vegetable valley over there. And Phil is a long-term uh, vegetable farmer. Uh, I'm guessing over a thousand acres, actually, all told, between two ranches. And what what he is very keen to do now is increase the period of green cover. So he wants to, you know, grow his cash crops, his vegetables, and then immediately or as soon as possible, insert a cover crop that he will. Establish with a cedar. He will plant, put the the cover crop seed mixture in a planter box or a hopper, okay. and then plant that out in spacing of maybe even sixty inches. All right, five feet wide lines of cover crop seed. He'll then use a single line surface drip tape uh, that uh, allows him the precision, the ability to apply very small amounts of water uh, just on an as needed, maybe one time per week, he's saying, because he doesn't have the pumping capacity at his farm that allows him to to irrigate all his land there. So he's got to be very careful with how much water he puts on there. But he he uses that drip irrigated, precisely placed water to irrigate the cover crop. And uh, according to his experiences in the last few seasons here he's been able to get full canopy cover out of that single line seeded cover crop that is saving him money on seed but eventually you know covers the ground uh, with the foliage and, and plant material there so it's it's a novel thing there's nobody else doing that but you know from a number of perspectives it makes a lot of sense there and one of the dogmas that we have or we face in California with respect to the use of cover crops and that's really part of the reason why in some sectors and many regions of the state uh, that don't have lots of water there's reluctance by many farmers to even consider using cover crops is the water cost and that's something we've been dogging through our research and it it turns out that it's a trade-off there are going to be costs if you're growing them in more of the high ET or evapotranspiration demand periods of the year the hotter periods of the year But there are also trade-offs in terms of when the cover crop is growing, it's cooling the soil temperature. There's not as much soil water evaporation. There's more water used effectively as plant or crop transpiration. And then we also know, and our own research has shown this, and you're certainly well aware of these kind of findings, that the, the water intake or the infiltration, the aggregation, and even the storage is something we've recently been able to show here. Those kind of physical water holding uh, aspects can be improved there. So it's a trade-off in terms of water use because I think it's fair to say that the water use of cover crops, from our own research, has shown and indicated that the water use is not as great as, as people often think it is there, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of an important thing. And Phil is somebody that is certainly mindful of you know the the cost of water. He cannot liberally put on water you know frivolously, frivolously but he's. He's also mindful of the value that cover crops have had to his his overall system there. And I think there are other people that are in that camp as well there.
0: We'll rejoin Frank Lester and Jeff Mitchell in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as... Auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at MontagMFG.com, that's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Leseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact.
3: Back in 2001, we did a story on coated seed and the promise it held for earlier no-tilling. There was a company in uh, Indiana called Landec Ag that was expanding its temperature-sensitive seed polymer research efforts to determine which hybrids will give no-tillers the best yields when planting two or three weeks earlier than normal. The company was later sold to Monsanto. The idea was uh, it didn't gain a lot of uh, use and uh, the seed coating technology has kind of disappeared from the programs of many seed suppliers today. But the idea was to choose hybrids that have cold tolerance, early season vigor, strong emergence, strong root systems, and disease resistance. And you would plant these two to three weeks earlier, but the seed wouldn't start to germinate because of the coating until the uh, temperature warmed up. Still a great idea, but I don't think much has been done on it.
0: And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Jeff Mitchell.
1: So, down in the vegetable area, particularly if you're doing more than one crop a year, disease has got to be a problem. And in the early days of uh, no-till back here in the Midwest, anytime there was a disease problem, the plant pathologist said you got to plow it under.
2: And And that's something I... For the life of me, I'm not really sure how we have avoided that or not seen those kind of pathogen issues surface. Uh And I'm I'm thinking back many, many years now. I mean, we've had plant pathology colleagues involved with our work there, and we've, you know, kept an eye out for these kind of problems. Uh, I guess what the literature, according to one of my uh, friends who's a colleague in in plant pathology and she you know she actually did a little bit of a literature search and you know it says you might imagine there are findings that show that under high residue reduced disturbance conditions you may have an increase in in pathogen load whereas in other conditions you know those same reduced disturbance high residue conditions you, you don't have that or you have intermediate kinds of problems there so in in all of the crops frank that we've Pretty carefully and with good observations out here evaluated. And that goes from the early days in our long term study that's been in place now for 20 years, where we started with tomatoes and cotton and then have diversified into garbanzo beans, corn, melons, with a whole other and, and other experiments we've had underway too. Pathogens have not been a problem. And I, I know that flies in the face of some of the speculation but that sure. that is honestly not what we faced yeah
1: so i mean you you're really making real progress but percentage wise or acreage wise no till strip till etc still doesn't make up a big percentage does it well or, I'm a, or i mean does it?
2: well that's that's another interesting <laughs> evolution here i think uh and and one of the things that I was able to report on at the the last strip till conference that sure. you you had in Peoria there this summer was it was sort of the the broad stroke history of strip till in California and let, let's just look at that for a second here. Okay. Uh, strip till surprisingly was introduced by a few really pioneering farmers in the processing tomato sector and and fresh market sector. So in processing tomatoes, again, it's the same basic approach here. Farmers wanted to, first of all, improve their soil. That was a driving goal there. So inserting winter cover crops was a practice that a few, and by a few, I, I truly mean just a handful of truly pioneering farmers were doing. So they would grow a a winter cover crop, the cheapest one possible, maybe barley, maybe triticale uh, from November, and they would drill, plant, or seed that And then they would terminate that either, you know, chemically and mow that uh, in springtime. So Mm -hmm. uh, depending on when their tomato contracts needed them to plant, they would terminate the cover crop. Then a few of them now, and this was, you know, early trial and error. How do you figure out how to do strip-till? And a few farmers were even developing their homemade strip-till machines with straight-bladed coulters, maybe a soil loosener behind that, and then some clod breaking basket mechanism behind that these were handmade or or homemade things there and then eventually more commercial off the shelf strip tillers were used as well there but then they would transplant tomatoes directly into that strip till center of a bed with the cover crop you know on the surface there so that was some real pioneering work that was undertaken in in the early 2000s in fact i think these couple of farmers that i'm thinking of they were doing this in 2003. And we, by the way, in our research and our own work, you know, we've been dogging these kind of things, you know, that earlier or earlier in experiment station work there. So that was one example where the deliberate and, and that was enabled or maybe even required because farmers were increasingly using subsurface buried drip at that point. So they couldn't do the broadcast, you know, disking across the field because they'd run the risk of... Damaging the, the buried drip tape, so sure. they had to use control traffic GPS and and just minimal shallow ter- tillage. But these folks were just doing cover crops and strip tillage for their tomatoes. So that was one kind of shining example of very early on success in an, in an, maybe an unsuspecting sector. There, another cropping system that has seen, dare I say, fairly dramatic increases in the use of strip-till and, and, and even no-till in some parts uh, of the uh, rotation is the dairy silage production system. Right. So there are many dairies in the San Joaquin Valley towns from about Turlock, California in the north, all the way down to Tulare County in the, in the south-central part. Dairy industry has been big in, in, in recent decades. It's facing some real challenges now. But what, what farmers would do who are associated with dairy farms they would grow winter triticale largely as the silage crop and then they would conventionally do two or three weeks of conventional tillage and then they would plant into bare clean fields their corn which is the summer silage crop so they would do corn triticale rotations almost every year there well early on again uh and this comes again from some real true pioneers uh that when you do your second edition of the mavericks book there i hope you'll include some of us out here there because they really were you know pioneers in this what they would do then is is try to avoid that two-week delay in the springtime before planting corn and they would just literally uh, strip till and plant as quickly as possible as soon, as soon as the soil moisture conditions would allow them to do those two crop establishment operations. Now there was learning associated with that. How do you do that? You know how do you handle the strip tiller? And strip till machines were then being introduced in California. Some of the providing companies, you know, had actual people on hand and who were present and would share information. And and we were certainly working with the whole group of folks at that time. But in 2004, our tillage work group, we actually did surveys every other year of tillage management practices. And at that point, strip till or no till in any of these systems, and the dairy silage for short, was done on about 2% Of the crop acreage in the state. And after about 2012, uh, the latest survey that we did at that point, it was over 45%. So that's been a a tremendous increase in the adoption of strip tillage in the dairy silage corn arena that, you know, is, is pretty dramatic, actually. And there now, another thing that has been helpful in enabling that transformation or that transition is Uh, the availability and attention of some uh, private sector companies that that you probably know well of here. Mm -hmm. One of them has has really been very very strong in partnering with farmers and bringing in new equipment the know-how and the skill sets that's required to to couple practices together in terms of fertility and tillage reduction approaches and a few years ago they started having a program where they, they would do sort of a custom strip till and planting service uh-huh. uh, for one year on a limited acreage basis, and then after that year, if the farmer was satisfied with the, the performance, uh, he or she could could opt to get their own equipment there. So that's been a you know a very important private sector role that had a great role in enabling the ex- expansion of strip till in that particular particular si- system
1: these dairy farmers, where they were planting triticale, like it's a, a cover crop, they leave it at a cover crop, or they harvest
2: it for forage? No, the triticale is probably, you know, it was seeded in November, maybe late, later than that, early December. So it's now at least knee high, and probably going to, you know, grow for another month. Okay. Probably at some point in March is when they, you'll see a in these dairy regions here a flurry of chopper and trailer harvesting equipment come into play and that will be taken off for silage uh at the from the fields there and then then either you know strip till or conventional tillage will be done there and you know again thanks to the the innovation and the the encouragement and the working hand in hand with farmers uh, by that private sector company you know they're now Uh, In fact, when I was at the strip till meeting in Peoria with you all there this summer, I think we had six or seven farmers who were actually, you know, brought there with this company there, and it was there's there's a lot of momentum that has happened in a relatively short period of time.
1: So, when they take this Trichalea off its forage, there's still enough cover on the ground left. To...
2: Well, that's a very good question, another kind of curiosity. Let me tell you a story. Way back in 2007, we took a group of about 14 California farmers and we visited one of my two important mentors Dwayne Beck in in South Dakota sure. and we also visited uh farmers and and researchers in Nebraska and Colorado but i remember when we were at uh, the Dakota Lakes research farm with Dwayne one afternoon there and and we you know we were down on our hands and knees looking at wormholes and residue cover and crop growth and all this stuff that Dwayne so well shows to people there and has just been phenomenally important in, in pioneering all of this. Right. Uh, I remember one of the farmers said, well, wait a minute, We how are we going to do this? We cannot generate this kind of residue because we're we're chopping it and we're hauling it off there. And so there was a real worry on, you know, that was a dairy farmer. He actually said right. that right on the spot when we were with Dwayne there. And so I, I actually did a little bit of follow-up, not monitoring or research or anything, and you're right. When 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 the 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 triticale silage is is chopped and removed and harvested, it looks like it's chopping it down to the, you know, two inches, two inches, four inches above the soil surface. And, you know, the risk right. would be that you're not going to have much residue, but there can be a residue that does, you know, remain. And it's and you, plus you're not disturbing the soil as was used to be done in, in broadcast Traditional tillage things. So residues can accumulate, and some of these benefits over the long haul of improved soil physical. Condition can be achieved, I think. So the, I, I forgot the exact numbers, but there, I, I monitored residue cover after triticale harvest at a number of places, and there was surprisingly, I, I, again, I don't remember the exact numbers or percent residue cover that existed there, but it it wasn't zero. It was there was some amount there, and the other side of it that we haven't talked about is that you know for those folks that are going from summer corn, which is then chopped and removed in trailers as silage, into, back into Triticale, some of that now is even being done no-till. There is the potential anyway for, for residues to accumulate over time, uh, but that's something I, I'm, not, I'm not fully sure on how, to what extent that's happening. But the innovation of strip-till in the spring and even no-till in that dairy silage sector is, is again, as I said, pretty dramatic there. So when
1: uh, they take off this triticale silage, have they got to terminate the triticale before they plant corn or not?
2: No, 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 no. There's no herbicide. There's no termination.
1: Okay. It won't
2: won't grow about. That's a very good question. I don't really, I don't know that for sure. I don't think there's any, there's any herbicide intervention in that. I could be wrong about that, but I don't, that does not come to my mind there. It's generally at a fairly mature stage again,
1: well, I remember Dwayne. Dwayne talked at the very. We've had him a number of times at the National No Till Conference, but he spoke at the very first one in 1993, and I still yeah. remember. I still remember one of the statements he made. We were in Indianapolis, and he said, "You guys in Indiana and Ohio, no till to get rid of the water, and in South Dakota, we no till to keep every drop that falls." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a big difference on how it works.
2: You no, know, and so, let me just let me just say on that on that issue, Frank, that you know what. What you just described there about Dwayne and, and the farmers that he's worked with in, in their region there wanting to conserve water in the soil, infiltrate, capture more and store more in the soil so they don't have to do the summer fallow system there right. that was common before the nineteen nineties, from what I understand. You know, we've done those very same kinds of measurements and determinations out here with zero disturbance, no till and surface residues. And what we found, too, is that if you don't till the soil and you keep it covered, if you grow a crop during the normal summer ET demand period, where the evapotranspiration demand can be 26 inches of water, you can probably readily reduce soil water evaporation by four or five inches, which is what the finding is out of Kansas there. So residue and reduced disturbance tillage, you know that's that's a size that's about thirteen or fourteen percent of the overall water demand of that season. There, so you know, I, when we first found that or or published that here in California, I thought it was going to be, you know, a, a fairly significant finding. But it 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 hasn't been so. I'm afraid to say because it's it's challenging for how to how do people get into these systems and and really make them work in terms of production. So that's, but we found something very similar to what Duane and the farmers that he was working with in the early 90s and other folks in in some of the central states there have also been forced to look at too you know reducing disturbance keeping the soil covered and and trying to increase water right. use efficiency there
1: you know, back here in the Midwest where we are in Milwaukee, we, we've we got some small vegetable operations. They don't make up any big, huge production. But the one crop we don't have here that you've worked with is cotton. Tell us what you've well, been doing with no Well, goat, all right. So now,
2: cotton, cotton uh, you, you're you absolutely right in, in recalling that and bringing that back into my mind here because uh, cotton, as you well know, uh, in Tennessee, for instance, and I, another one of my mentors and somebody that we hosted out here in California is John Bradley, who sure. was, you know, with the, the Milan experiment station there. And I, I occasionally look into their, their annual uh, data and for the extent of no-till adoption in, in Tennessee, it's 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 phenomenally phenomenal. It's staggering. Somewhere over 80 percent of cotton is grown with no-tillage in in that area. There, so I'm well aware of the the track record of some regions anyway for toward no-tillage there. When we started our 20-year-long rotation study in Five Points, California, in the San Joaquin Valley, and again, this was direct outgrowth of the input and the inspiration that I personally and professionally have received from Dwayne Beck and another one of my mentors up in Minnesota, Don Rakoski, sure. uh, was to, you know, Don, I remember when we hosted him out here and we I took him back to the Sacramento airport and he said, my one piece of advice for you, Jeff, is to reduce the volume of soil that you're disturbing. And that's, that has stuck with me ever to this very day there. And that's what we've tried to do. When we started the long-term project in 1999, uh, we were growing in rotation in it cotton and tomatoes because those were two very dominant pervasive crops of the region there in fact in those days in the old days cotton was king in the San Joaquin Valley right. it hasn't it hasn't remained that 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 dominant there but so we 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 had to learn cotton no till establishment and to be honest with you we we failed we we had a couple of early seasons where we were not as savvy and attentive to the planter Set up and uh, the planting operations, and we got reduced stand, poor stand establishment, and poor plant populations. We eventually learned, and again, one of the folks who really helped us do that was Monty Bottons, who you you sure. know well yeah. from right. Illinois. There, Monty and his dad are no-till farmers for many many years back in the Midwest there, and he was working at that time as a. As a, a consultant, of, and uh, you know, he started his own company out here in California. So he he really led a very important hand in in our efforts to overcome the challenges of cotton planting and establishment there. And once we were able to do that, I don't remember the exact number of years, but we've since you know published papers that show no yield reductions in in no till cotton for a number of years there. So mm-hmm. we had to learn how to do that and. The surprising thing though you might you might be saying to yourself well if you're you're able to do these things with significant or substantial reductions in tillage why isn't there more uptake or adoption of these practices well it turns out that and this is surprising maybe to a lot of folks in your region in the Midwest that the actual percentage or the cost of tillage in a crop production budget for many of the crops we've been talking about today is relatively small and what that means is that yes if you save you know maybe fifty to a hundred and forty dollars per acre per crop on tillage costs that's still a relatively minor part of the overall crop production budget so tomato farmers for instance are you know having to face production cost of thirty five hundred dollars per per acre per crop there And if you save $100 of that and you risk one ton of tomato yield, which is $70 per ton, you pretty much diminished your overall saving there. So there's a risk factor that comes into these higher value crops there. And I think that's had a role in, you know, maybe stymieing or, you know, limiting some of the initial adoption, whereas in your areas... Savings of one hundred and forty dollars would be quite substantial. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, if you got thirty-five hundred dollars an acre in in, uh, input costs for tomatoes, what what kind of income would you get per acre? Uh,
2: Very good question, and I I I don't I I don't have a real good feel for that, but um, I think the yields for tomatoes have been a dramatically impressive success story, and you Mm -hmm. know since tomatoes were started being grown in the early you know, 1900s. There, there are records on tomato productivity in California uh, going back to 1920, I think, for sure. And the yields have increased 700 percent or something. So that's just a, a story of improved genetics, improved management, and, and lots of different things coming together there. But the the yields per acre have gone up from, you know, I don't remember maybe 20 tons per acre in those early days to maybe thirty tons by the nineteen eighties and now it's over eighty tons per acre is not uncommon. Uh, you know, at seventy dollars per ton, I don't know what that figures out to that be. That would be
1: fifty six hundred dollars.
2: That's right. There. So I don't but right. there are that's a phenomenal yield there. So I better back <laughs> off there. Not right. everyone's getting eighty tons, but that right. that has been and that can be achieved there. But the other part of the the economics there is that the cost per ton to farmers has really plateaued and is, if anything, stagnant. And it hasn't changed in a, in a whole lot of years there. So, you know, that, that $70 per ton, I, it may be more like $58 than I, now that I think about it, Frank. So right. okay. it might be less than that, yeah.
1: So you've still got a lot of dry land area in California, wheat, barley, dry land, corn, other crops, uh, no-till, strip-till catching on in mm-hmm. those areas?
2: that 's that 's another sector that the dry land or rain fed regions the farmers are growing many of those crops you just listed there, but the answer uh, in terms of tillage management is there 's not a lot of change on that frontier i don 't i 'm not aware of that, and i haven 't seen much of that happening. those crops in in rain fed areas they 're not they 're not vanishing they 're not going away, but there hasn 't been the kind of if I can say progress in terms of, you know, toward reduced disturbance tillage and those kind of sectors. Another interesting thing, though, and this is something that we, I, again, I've had the very good fortune or luxury as you have in knowing people, you know, around the world and the country who were, were the pioneers out there and right. making these changes, you know, as they were happening. And I, I know that in the 1980s, there were some dry land, small grain regions in California where farmers were seeing that they were gonna be up against it in in a lot of ways and they right. in terms of water. And what they what they did then was they brought in expertise in the form of farmers coming down from the Pacific Northwest, like Washington, Idaho and Oregon where the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association mm-hmm. formed in in that very time. So farmers would come down as consultants to these California farmers. Plus, there was an influx of no-till drills at that point in a few regions. I mean, there was one in the San Joaquin Valley, one over there in the central coast by uh, San Luis Obispo. So there was innovation that was happening during that region. But I think the, the plateauing out of... You know, commodity cost or prices for those kind of lower value crops has not seen an increase in in the growing of those crops in some of those areas there. So that's been kind of a uh, decline in in their production in in those areas where historically they were, you know, many of those same areas now that I think about it are now covered by vineyards. So it's yeah. kind of the kind of thing where you want you have to scratch your head and you ask you know, how are people going to get the water in today's water short environment to grow. You know, uh, wine grapes, but that's what the landscape <laughs> looks like yeah. in some some of the regions we're talking about here. So I, I think it you know it's been a a really exciting time and a time where there has been lots of progress and pioneering work, but there are lots of opportunities.
1: Yeah, I was around Paso Robles maybe twenty years ago with a no tiller was running one of these big yiel- yielder drills, and now it's yeah pretty much become wine country
2: through that. no you're that's right that's right yeah yeah so I mean, california
1: is pretty much set in laws you've got uh air quality laws you've had dust problems with farmers uh diesel fuel emissions that all kind of fits into less tillage
2: yeah no in fact that's another saga or segment of this whole evolution story here When when we Back at the very beginning, when we started the long-term work out in the central San Joaquin Valley in the early 2000s, that was motivated and it was driven largely because of the air quality things. And Uh in the early 2000s, farmers in an eight-county region of the San Joaquin Valley, all the way from Stockton, which is in San Joaquin County in the north, so just south of Sacramento, all the way down to Bakersfield or Kern County in the south, those counties were out of compliance with US EPA air quality limits or thresholds mm-hmm. there for PM10 at that time, and and it became known after a while that there would be spikes in some of the exceedances in the fall time in October and November, when coincidentally there was a fair amount of tillage that was going on. So the idea of you know putting two to, two together there was could we investigate a little bit and uh, reduce disturbance systems for their the generation of of PM or particulate matter dust emissions there and you know you've you've heard me talk about this before but it's not surprising and it's not unexpected that if you reduce soil disturbance you're going to reduce emissions of, of dust there and our research showed that it can be quite dramatic, and, and you know, on the uh, upwards of 70, 75 percent reductions in dust there can be achieved by a, a switch uh, from conventional intensive tillage to, to strip till or no till. So, you know, we published that, and that that's uh, long forgotten maybe now. Information there, and there have been other improvements on air quality in California over the last 10 or 15 years there that are not just you know, tillage derived there. But the NRCS out here in California, I don't think they're still doing this, but they early on promoted in recognition of these air quality concerns that part of the, the valley was facing there, you know, they would incentivize a whole variety of practices that would allow for PM reductions. And they they kept pretty interesting, you know, data estimates for how much Dust was being reduced by uh, farmers who had signed on to, you know, sure. reduce disturbance practices and these kind of things. There, so uh, that's a, that's a pretty interesting data set as well. There, but yeah. that that happened in the early days. And again, 2004, I can remember being at a at a farm field day where there were people from the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District there who were just laying out, you know, what the the new laws and the mandates for what was called conservation management practices. At that point, farmers who had land above a certain acreage level or something had to register for doing or implementing five practices that would directly address air quality goals. And you know, they could you know spraying stuff on roadways, keeping the roads wet, mm. and reducing tillage were all part of that portfolio that people can look at there.
1: Well, I just wrote a story, one of my columns a month or two ago, about a little oh, town saw. out on Long Island where, yeah. uh, the I think it was potato growers, where the dust was coming up, and they passed the law that you got to have cover crops.
2: Well, oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that,
1: yeah. So I've uh, I've kind of dominated what we've talked about. What do you want to talk about?
2: Well, thank you again, Frank. This has been a uh, I hope it's been a useful and oh, it's excellent uh, for uh, opportunity to talk with you and to share with you. I just want to you know maybe end or close out the the dialogue here just by recognizing the utter value and the sheer help that so many people, including you and, and the National No-Till Farmer Association and everything you've done over the years to to spread information, to share ideas and information and techniques and technologies there, that's that's been extremely important. And as I tried to uh, mention and acknowledge uh, as we were talking this afternoon, you know, the, the role that some true pioneers and those mentors that I've had Dwayne Beck and Don Rikoski, Rick Bieber, and really a whole host of other folks. I, you know, And I mentioned the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association. And when we were starting to form a work group in California, and I can remember these were in the days when a fax was the way we communicated. I, I remember sending a fax out to a whole group of farmers maybe 25 years ago, and then I think about it, would you be interested in conservation tillage approaches? That's the term we mm-hmm. used in those sure. days. And, you know, it was a lot, a lot of our what we've tried to achieve and accomplish in California through our work group, which now has many, many farmers, many private sector people, uh, government agency people and and, and folks like me with a university was modeled after what we had seen in other regions that that you and other people have done and have succeeded at. And, you know, I, I have to have a debt of gratitude to you all for, for what you've done and and how you've steadfastly encouraged our work out here. It's been very meaningful and it's been very appreciated. So I thank you all. And uh, we look forward to the next uh, generation of challenges here.
1: Right. Well, thank you. It's been fun watching this all these years. I want to end this on a high note here. Yeah. And you, you tell me whether this is a true story or not. Yeah. I, saw a story once, I think, somebody wrote that rode with you in the car and said it was the messiest car he'd ever seen oh. in his life.
2: Is, <laughs> no, that, a okay. true, is that a true no, story? But, uh, <laughs> you bring up a laugh, laughing smile on my face here. But I'll tell you the story on that. There was actually, And you can find this out. I'll send you the link there. It was a, a very good writer. His name was Nathaniel I forgot John.
1: Yeah, I think he, I saw this story once. It was
2: in the publication Grist G R I S T dot org and the title was No Tills Johnny Appleseed in a Grimy Prius. And that was the, <laughs> I took this guy, he came around from Berkeley, California for a full day. We visited yeah. several farmers and he was just stunned or impressed by the the dust and the messiness in my car so it it is a true story frank and i actually won that that very prius that toyota prius got six hundred and fifty thousand miles on it wow so that's yeah. <laughs> that's also a true story there but uh, those were the days of i shouldn't right. be a, uh, happy with that but that was a but uh, it was my good, work truck good, there good. yeah right, right. Hey, I, this has been
1: a great hour. I really appreciate you doing this. And, man, we covered a lot of territory here today, and I think you're doing a great job out there. Wow. And, uh, We're uh, most grateful. Lots more now. to come, but thank you very much. Take no, care. No, Frank,
2: I thank you for everything, and uh, I hope it turns out well. Uh, thanks very much.
0: for tuning into the no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast you can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no forward slash podcasts before we wrap up this episode here's frank once more answering listener inquiry
3: question from a reader was is no-till turned out the way you would have imagined it would be when you looked at this back in the early 1970s Well, we started out in uh, 1972 with 3.2 million acres of no-till, which was the best estimates we got from the state agronomists. But today, there's about 108 million acres. So we've made a lot of progress, and no-till's really caught on. You know, people say to us, thanks for what you've done, and we have definitely had some accomplishments, and I'm proud of what we've done. I think we've played a minor role in uh, the growth of no-till, but I'm proud to say I've been part of it.
0: Thanks to Frank Lessiter and Jeff Mitchell for today's conversation, and thanks to our sponsor Montag Manufacturing for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlach at com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at ListenerMail at NotillFarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lessiter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlock. Thank you for listening.